Welcome to Free to Learn, a podcast exploring the stories of formerly incarcerated college students. Romarilyn Ralston is a nationally recognized leader in supporting students with carceral experience. She is currently the executive director of Project Rebound at California State University Fullerton. It was her work with Project Rebound that was, in many ways, a catalyst for what we're trying to do here at Santa Fe. My name is Jason Frank. I'm an instructional designer at Santa Fe College, and I'm interested in better understanding how we can create a learning environment that better meets the needs of students. A critical step to good design is listening to individuals with experience and expertise. So let's hear what Romarilyn has to say. So I just I want to start the podcast with just kind of a general a general question. What does what does education mean to you? Wow, that's a pretty pretty important general question to start off with. Wow, education means it it means really almost everything to me. It's it's been a way for me to reinvent myself, to transform myself, to to help transform others. It's been an avenue to leadership. It's been an avenue to, you know, financial stability and success. You know, education means, you know, having opportunities. It means being able to think critically about issues and life. And also means, you know, family. Mm-hmm. It means networking. It means community. Well, so when you when you talk about the transformative power, right? In what ways do you see yourself having been transformed by education? Well, if it wasn't for education, I probably wouldn't be an organizer. I, I wouldn't be interested in social justice and abolition. I wouldn't be working at a university for sure, and I don't think I would have. I've been able to continue, you know, with schooling in the way that I have and even be writing my own memoir right now. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what I mean by being transformative. It it continues to open doors and opportunities to be better, to do better, to do more, to meet other people and to provide opportunities for others. So as you were um, as you were pursuing your degrees, what did you what were the what were the primary obstacles that you faced as you pursued education inside the prison In, or outside it, the prison? Well, let's talk about let's talk about both. Let's let's talk about let's start with the obstacles you faced while you were uh, pursuing education within the prison, and then what happened after? Okay. Well, while in the prison, I I started college, my first college class in 1990, and, you know, it was great. I've always wanted to, you know, get a college degree as a kid. I wanted to be an astronaut as a kid. When I took my first college class, I think it was um, college algebra, and it was hard, and but it was fun and exciting because I'd always wanted to be a college kid. I always loved books. And even though I was in prison, I had this opportunity and it was fun. I I felt alive and inspired every day that I was going to class. 
you know, and, and just having that experience and that label, mm-hmm. a student, you know, and then semester after semester, you know, different classes and different conversations and different engagement materials and different discourse. And then the crime bill hit, you know, in 94, and incarcerated students lost access to Pell Grant funding. So we lost our programs. And so some of the challenges was that college programs disappeared across the country, not just in California, but everywhere. So those of us who hadn't earned a degree yet, we were stuck with a handful of credits and really no way of pursuing a degree until, you know, these diploma mill schools and correspondence schools started to pop up and, you know, they were really predatory, but Mm. it was an opportunity for people to finish something that they started. And so for me, that was really important for me to finish. So I enrolled in a number of schools. I finished uh, Blackstone Blackstone Law School, had a paralegal degree. I finished that. Then I went to Newport University, and I earned a bachelor's degree in human behavior and went on to a master's program through a seminary school and then through Christian Leadership University earned a doctorate in Christian philosophy. But all this was through correspondence. I didn't know a lot about accreditation. A lot of these schools had international accreditations or belonged to religious societies that didn't require government accreditation. And so there wasn't that education about, you know, what these schools and and these degrees would mean outside of the prison. Sure. And, you know, it was... It was accepted and respected by the prison. It was a way for me to continue to learn, which I love to do. But when I came home, it was meaningless. And so I had to start over. And when I found myself at the Claremont Colleges auditing a class, not technically auditing a class, but having a friend who was teaching there who allowed me to sit in her class and to have that experience again that I had lost, you know, before the 94 crime bill, I just fell back in love with school. And it was through her encouragement to apply to Pitzer College that I said, okay, I'm going to do it again if I, if, if I get accepted. And I did. I was accepted to Bitzer College, and then I was introduced to social justice. Mm -hmm. And I never thought about social justice when I was incarcerated. Hmm. Outside of a sociology class or, you know, an ethics class or philosophy class or something like that, I never saw myself wanting to be a part of the movement for social justice because I just wanted to run away from my experience as an incarcerated person, as being someone with a criminal history. I just wanted to go underground and put it all behind me. But it was through the experience that I had as an undergrad student at Pitzer through a program called Borrowed Voices that went into the youth facility, Aflabaugh Page, and I was teaching a class there with incarcerated youth, and we were writing poetry and interrogating hip-hop music and really 
critically looking at those lyrics mm-hmm. to see how they influence our lives, the lives of others, and how we were engaging with uh, that music and fantasizing about a life like that, knowing that it wasn't really real, but somehow internalizing it anyway. Sure. And uh, when I, one day I went into the juvenile facility and they just, they just look like my kids. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, there's something wrong here. And from that point on, I just started to really get involved in social justice. I started reading more about abolition and more about uh, restorative justice practices. And one thing led to another. And all of a sudden, I was in grad school in St. Louis in 2014, about to start Wash U, and Michael Brown was killed. And I just happened to live in North County, St. Louis. My niece lived in Ferguson. And I got involved. I, I went down to the quick trip, and it was ground zero. And I started meeting with people and just listening to what folks were talking about and marching in the streets. And I found myself, you know, engaging in that movement for black lives. And it, it just changed everything for me. And Washington University had a number of conversations. The Black Student Union was involved. I spoke about it when I gave the convocation speech. And just one thing just led to another. I was part of the Coral Fellows Program at the time, and one of our executives was part of the Ferguson Commission, and we were asked to volunteer for a number of things. I volunteered, and the more I got involved in in the social movement of, of what was happening in Ferguson, the more I realized that I needed to be involved because of my lived experience with mm-hmm. incarceration, because of me being a black American in America. And um, yeah, I just, education did did that. It it helped me to figure out how I wanted to give back to my community, to the world, um, but also how I wanted to fight. And it taught me how to fight. It almost, you know, and, and it almost seems like, like, while you were in prison, education was a way to kind of escape. And then after prison, education became a way to engage. Engage. Yeah. Right. To be more present yeah. rather than you know, and that's that's an amazing that's an amazing story. So so were there were there particular classes or instructors or mentors that you think were, were key on this journey for you? Hmm. Well, oh, definitely. Um, one of my favorite so, uh, in, at Pitzer as an undergrad was Maria Solentenko. She taught a Chicana Studies class, but she she talked about social movements um, in a way that was really powerful and engaging for me. I could see the the revolutionary, radical. Um, energy of the the Chicana studies movement for for ethnic studies you know and she talked about being involved 
in that movement as a student at Cal State LA, and then I had a couple of classes around prison education. I thought, I'm gonna take a prison education class. And uh, Dr. Sojourner um, introduced me to Dylan Rodriguez and Ruthie Gilmore. And he actually took us to meet Ruthie Gilmore when she visited Pomona College. And reading Golden Gulag blew my mind, blew my mind. I had no idea of the economy that prisons create mm -hmm. um, and how it, it stimulates and just the prison industrial complex, you know, how this whole web of corporations and government and education and systems connect. I mean, these kind of classes really helped me to think bigger and broader about how I became incarcerated, what my labor meant mm. to the state of California, what my body meant to the state of California, um, and others, you know, it's just, it was really eye-opening. And still when I think about it, even right now, I'm, I'm just baffled by how diabolical <laughs> some of these systems really are. And, and if it wasn't for people like Angela Davis and Ruthie Gilmore and, and Dylan Rodriguez and, and others talking about these systems of oppression that primarily target poor, marginalized communities where many of us are black and brown people that end up being enslaved by our own governments um, and, you know, also abandoned by them at the same time. Just really, I think, provoked me in a way while I was in Ferguson to say, you know, now that I know better, I need to do something about it, mm -hmm. you know, and I just can't have this knowledge and this information and not push back in some kind of way. And that pushing back could be protesting, something that harms another community member like, you know, Darren Wilson, mm -hmm. when he killed Michael Brown, it could be you know, creating some type of after-school program. It could be teaching incarcerated youth. It could be working at Project Rebound. You know, it could be a lot of things, but I think we need to each one teach one mm -hmm. and so that we're, we're all in a position to, to know more about how these systems work so that we can have more control of our own freedom and liberation. What do you think that, what do you see as like the main challenges for drawing attention to these systems uh, and helping people, helping people to see them? One of the main problems is we're distracted by too many things. You know, social media, relationships, you know, money, substance abuse. I mean, just wanting to fit in and belong. There's so many distractions in the world where people are not really reading 
and talking and communicating with one another anymore where everyone's a so- soundbite, mm-hmm. you know, and there's so many podcasts and so many <laughs> sites to be on and everyone's liking something. No yeah. one wants to thumbs down anything. It's, it's so much pressure now. Um, we're just not talking to one another like we used to. You know, I'm a, I'm a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time, because I've only been out of prison 12 years, and it took me a long time to text. I used to tell people, <laughs> don't text me, call me. I want to hear your voice. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to you. You know, I'd rather spend five minutes talking to you than 15 text messages. And they wore me down. <laughs> <laughs> And now I find myself sending text messages and isolating myself, you know, and just, just everything is just, you know, 40 characters, a hundred characters. And that's not what life is supposed to be about. Well, and it's, you know, one of the interesting things with, with social media is this, this idea that, um, because I liked a post or I made a, a short little TikTok video, like I've done something and, and you, you create this illusion of activism that um, I think undermines, can undermine the real work of it. And finding that balance, that's, yeah. Yeah, and it is, it is about connection. Um, what, what kind of student would you describe yourself as? Well, inside the prison, I was pretty pretty assertive. I was almost aggressive and, and, and very competitive in the classroom. You know, we, we all had to be the best. You know, everyone wanted to be an A student. We were all A students, but, you know, we had, still had to be ranked. And um, I wanted to be number one. So very competitive for, for a very long time. And then... When I was an undergrad at Pitzer College, which was totally different because everyone there was so brilliant. You just, these kids were smart and had all the advantages of, you know, AP and honors courses and, and high school trips. And, and they were just so well-traveled and well-spoken, spoke multiple languages. And here I was, a 50-year-old black woman who has spent two and a half decades in prison and hadn't had that kind of foundation. So I felt out of place and I kind of retreated within myself until one day a professor friend told me that I had something that these kids didn't have and that was experience, you know, and multiple experience. I had been in the military, I had been in prison, I had, I was 50 years old, I had experienced a lot of life and that I had a way of reading the material Mm -hmm. that people who hadn't lived as long as I had or experienced the things that I had could do. And so I could bring all of that into the classroom, and I didn't know that I could bring all of that into the classroom. And when I was told I could, I did. And so I started to engage with the material and with the students from my own epistemology, from my own experiences. And not only did it open up more discussion in the classroom, but it allowed me to 
to to be a student and also somewhat of a teacher. Sure. And so that helped to put me back into what I used to feel like as a student inside, competitive and wanting to, you know, contribute mm-hmm. to the to the class and 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 be number one, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and and then you know, grad school was was a little different because it was a bunch of older students now. And we were all experienced and they were professionals and now was intimidated by a lot of these these um, profession folks were starting to second and third careers now. Sure. And it was Wash U. So I was like, oh my God, this is my dream school. So I was feeling that all over again, the imposter syndrome that so mm-hmm. many of us feel. But... Um, You know, somehow I got through it and I wasn't trying to be number one. I wasn't trying to compete. I had gotten to a place in my life where I was starting to believe that I was good enough and I didn't have mm. to do do extra, you know, <laughs> yeah. to be more, to prove myself. And I just wanted to enjoy the experience. And so that was really nice getting to that point. And that's why I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with it. <laughs> you know, that, that, I, that idea of, of, you know, again, coming back to systems like the, the higher education system, and you can very easily get caught up in the grades and the GPA and the rankings uh, and, and lose sight of that, that transformation. Right, and it just becomes about checking boxes, and that—that's a really—that's a huge step, I think, for any student to be able to step back and say, you know, the A matters less than the change. Um, so, so when you when you came back to school, um, how forth how forthcoming were you about your carceral experience with other students and faculty? With faculty, I was wide open. Okay. With the students, I was afraid, you know. I thought that, you know, these kids would call their parents. And I really thought this, that they would call their parents and say, guess who's in my class? This, this woman who spent two and a half decades in prison and, and you know, whatever they would say. And they would start to Google and do all these things. And the parents would call the school and insist that I be you know, expelled or removed. And that's what I, that was the fear I had. All of the the shame and stigma of incarceration. And I just, I just felt like one day, that's, that's why the imposter syndrome was so powerful in my life. I thought one day I would walk onto campus and there would be a line of parents with tiki torches and I would feel like, you know, Frankenstein mm. and they would be running me out of town. You know, that was the fear I had. Wow. It never happened. <laughs> and and did you did you did you overcome that fear while you were still in school or, or was it more in retrospect? I I didn't overcome it until probably my senior year and I was one semester away from graduating and at that point no one had run me out of town. Uh, people knew who I was. And they were so gracious and so supportive. 
I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I would tell some of the suit, look, you, you know, you know, I've been in prison, you know, and I just came home six months ago or last year. And I don't know what social media is. I don't know how to get here. I don't know how to use this. What is that? And they would just sit with me and show me how to use different software and access different sites on on the internet and then, oh bro you don't have to do that you can just go to this site and it'll do all that for you and it'll create your bibliography and it'll create your this and it'll spell check that i was like what you know because yeah. i was suffering i was up all night i didn't know these tricks <laughs> these tools were available i didn't have the social capital and so the coming out really gave me access to to people who had that social capital. And they were willing to teach me. I just had to be willing to be open. And once I was, my life changed. I actually started to enjoy classes and started to not be so intimidated by technology and the internet. Things became a lot easier for me. You know, I was I was up writing things with pencil and paper every night and using dictionaries, books, hard copies, paper, you know, and all this stuff was online. I didn't have a clue. No one was telling me that. And they didn't know they needed to tell you. And they didn't know they needed to tell me because people didn't know who I was. Yeah. And I had, so I had to be vulnerable. I had to be brave. I had to be courageous. And it was through that vulnerability, that courage, that people said, okay, I can help you do that. I can help you do this. And that's when, that's when my life started to change. You have to have the courage to ask for help in order to be helped. Simple as that. I remember reading something by Brene Brown. She talked about the difference between fitting in and belonging. Right, And when you're fitting in, you're trying to figure out you know, what are the behaviors, what are the skills, you know, and, and you don't go, you don't ask. But to belong is to say, here I am. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I want to be here, and this is, this is who I am. And I, I hadn't really thought until, until I was listening to you speak that, that when, when you're willing to, to show up, you're not only, um, you, you, it's that vulnerability, but you're also inviting people to help mm-hmm. in a way that they can't if you don't, if you don't show up. Because we're all bringing the representative, you know, yeah. we're, we're not bringing our authentic selves. We show up, we're suited, we're booted, we're not talking to people, we act like we have it all together, yeah. but we're a hot mess, <laughs> you know, and it's not until you say, you know, I'm a hot mess, help me, I'm not eating, I'm not sleeping, I, I don't know what I'm doing, that you're, you're able to get the support that you need. And it wasn't until I was able to tell people, look, I just got out of prison after two and a half decades. I don't know what this is. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And really, I didn't know. I wasn't being lazy. I wasn't, you know, trying to avoid doing my share of my part. I wasn't using it as an excuse. I honestly did not know. I had never seen or heard of these things. Mm-hmm. And people received that, and it changed the game for me. So any students out there that think they have to hide in the shadows, 
you know, stay in the darkness because of shame, embarrassment, or fear. You know, we've all been through something. You know, we all have things that we're ashamed of and embarrassed about. And there are people out here that are willing and ready to help you if you if you come out of that darkness and step forward into the light. So so when you're working with students that are coming out of out of prison and, and trying to make that transition into college, what what do you prioritize in terms of, of the guidance and the, the advice and, and the things that they should do? Community. That's my first priority. They've already proven that they deserve to be on campus. They received the admissions letter. Mm -hmm. And I tell them that you've already proven that you can do this work. You're here. So let's just take that off the table. Let's get you to a place where you feel supported, like you have a community, that you belong here. That's what we need to work on. So that when you are on this campus, you know where you're going, you know people, people know you, you feel safe. You know, you have your basic needs met, you have your textbook, you have parking if you need parking, transportation, you have food. You have all of the things that you need to be successful. You have housing, you have employment. Those are the things we worry about. You know, not the other way around. Hmm. And what are the obstacles for that, you know, to finding that community and feeling part of that community for these students? People have to believe it and accept the help. Mm. And and it takes a while because it took a while for me. I I didn't believe I deserved to be there. And it, it took a professor to tell me just what I just said. You know, you, you don't have to keep trying to prove that you belong here. You're here, which means you belong here. Because the acceptance rate was 9%. Yeah. <laughs> and when, when he said that, it made perfect sense. It's like not everyone gets in, but you did. So let's take that off the table. And how can we get you to get the most of this experience? Because it is a privilege to be here. Education is a privilege. You know, and, and when you get it, you know, you you use it to benefit others, mm -hmm. to benefit society. And so that just helped to shift something within my whole being about being a student, being on campus and belonging. And every time I would walk campus and I'd see a freshman over in the corner crying on the phone to their parent, oh, I loved it because <laughs> I knew Six months from now, you wouldn't be crying anymore. You would, you would have planted your flag on campus and you would have taken ownership, you know, of, of, of what this is all about. But it takes time for people to get there. They have to, they have to buy into it and they have to believe it. And there has to be people willing to be there for them. You can't do it by yourself. And as long as we are hiding in the dark and being ashamed and not coming forward, we won't build community. That's not how you build community. So, so, so what I heard earlier was that um, formal education, you're kind of, you're done. Or is that, 
did I? Did well, I you, you never say never. You never say never. <laughs> but there are no intentions. There's no intentions. No intentions on a, 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 another degree going forward at this point. Not one that I have to pay for. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so what are what are your goals? What are you what are you looking forward to accomplishing? Well, I'm writing a memoir, mm-hmm. and I hope to finish that. Um, by the end of the year, early spring next year. And after that, you know, I've wanted to run for office. Um, That's still kind of on my list of things to do, but slowly, you know, um, moving to the bottom of the list now. So there's a couple of things, but I always like to keep my options open because I don't know everything. And, Mm -hmm. you know, opportunities come my way and I want to be open to those opportunities. It's it's it has served me well so far. It served me in the prison to be open, and and flexible. It has served me well when since I've been home to walk through doors that other people have opened for me, and um, we'll see. And if you were to if you were to give advice not to to students but to instructors who wanted to support students who had carceral experience, what what would you tell them? Uh, I guess two things. Um, all students are different. Once you find out a student has gone to jail or prison, you know, don't think differently of them. You know, don't, they're just, it's an experience. Support the student, just like you would support anyone else, you know, listen to them, ask them what their needs are and help to provide those needs. And then secondly, you know, challenge the student to come forward, be more open, you know, invite them to participate in class more, to, to be visible so that they can be seen. Mm-hmm. Because that's really how we come into our own being, knowing that we are accepted. Is there anything else you would like to talk about in the few minutes that we have remaining? Well, you know, it's I identify as a black feminist abolitionist. I, I think we need to talk about mass incarceration in the prison system. We need to take a real hard look at how our state governments invest in corrections and really divest from education. We need to fix that and correct that. Now we need to make sure that our most vulnerable in our societies who are suffering from mental mental illness and homelessness and lack of quality housing and education and employment, that we use the resources to make sure that our communities are safe and healthy. That's where we should be putting our tax dollars. So all taxpayers out there need to make sure that their elected officials are doing that work for their community. There's too much homelessness. There's too much substance abuse. There's too much violence, which means that we're not investing in the type of resources that bring about 
well-being and health and life-affirming opportunities for individuals. Something's wrong with how we are allowing our governments to govern. So we have to hold them accountable to what's happening in our communities today and demand that they do better by us. And then we, as community members, need to hold each other accountable. And we need to stop turning our heads and looking away when there's problems in our communities and start doing, being real neighbors, mm -hmm. being neighborly, saying hello to each other and knowing the names of the people who live on our blocks and helping one another. You know, we, we have to get back to being kind and being concerned. Well, thank you so much. This has just been a wonderful conversation, and um, I know it's going to make a difference. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Romarilyn for coming in to talk with us, and I want to thank her for the work that she's doing. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the Florida Humanities or the National Endowment for the Humanities. This episode was produced by Ann Tebow and Lex Shelton. Thank you for listening.